Hello and welcome to Becoming Educated. I'm Darren Leslie. This week I am joined by Helen Howell. Helen is the Director of English at the Blue Coach School in Oldham. She previously worked at the Radcliffe School as English AST and Lead Teacher for Literacy, where she was instrumental in developing a knowledge-rich Key Stage 3 curriculum and a culture of reading for pleasure. Helen most recently published a great book alongside Ross Morrison-McGill of Teacher Toolkit, The Revision Revolution, How to Build a Culture of Effective Study in Your School. And we explore this in depth in today's episode. We discuss the following and so much more. Why students don't revise. Why creating a rich curriculum is the first step towards a revision revolution. Why we should start with staff training. How to kick off the revolution by sharing key revision strategies with Year 7 or S1 for us in Scotland. What teachers can do in lessons to support students learn the content. How we can train students to support themselves and how to engage adults in supporting the revision revolution. I love this interview with Helen, and the book is simply fantastic. A must-have if you want to supercharge your students' learning. Helen, thank you so much for coming on to Becoming Educated this evening. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Very, very relieved that it's half term. Um, it's been a long one, um, but thank you so much for this opportunity. It's lovely to speak to you. No, certainly it's lovely. I, I had the privilege of of getting a sneak peek of the of the book and reviewing it. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, working my way through it and I can't wait to explore that with you today but delighted you're on half term have you got any plans for your half term oh um just rest mainly um I've struck a little bit gold um because my kids are actually in nursery and school this week our holidays are different so a little bit of an issue childcare wise but it does mean that I've literally I'm a bit of a lady of leisure there's always work to do isn't there but um yeah just rest and a few sneaky lunches and things like that um it's it's really lovely oh that's but it's definitely it's definitely well deserved after such a such it just feels like such a long term coming back from Christmas and so we had our, we, we had our half term last week so I was back um back yesterday so it was we're back I'm back in the swing of things but loved it loved the time off and the relaxation so delighted delighted for you so we're here today to talk about um the book that you published alongside Ross Morrison McGill of Teacher Toolkit, um, The Revision Revolution. Um, and I can't wait to tuck into this and discuss it with you. And I want to start just simply by asking you to, before we do that, to share a little bit about you and your career to date, please. Yeah, of course. So um, when I started looking at teaching as a profession, I knew immediately, really, that I wasn't particularly interested in management as such. And I wanted to go for a route that was going to enable me to progress within the classroom. So I started looking straight away. This was back in the day when AST was a thing, so advanced skills teacher. Um, so I started looking at that route immediately and, and wanted something where I could really concentrate on developing my practice and developing the practice of others. So that's the route that I went down. I was really, really lucky in my first school to have that opportunity quite early on in my career, actually. Um, 
And the added bonus, they gave me a literacy focus. So I was AST for English, but also for literacy, um, which is one of my absolute great loves and passions. Um, And I just felt really privileged to have that role where I could develop literacy and kind of develop a bit more of a even playing field, if you like, um, for the students at Radcliffe, which was my first school. I then moved on very recently, actually, in the midst of the pandemic, I moved on to a head of English role. Very, very different to AST, a lot more accountability. Um, However, what I do love about that role and kind of the reason that I made the move was it allows me to really shape curriculum and make all those exciting decisions around sequencing and powerful knowledge and things like that and um, I'm very very lucky with the team that I lead as well they're, they're super enthusiastic um, and just kind of shape those pedagogical decisions I guess and and the things that we need to do to move forward and add value so I feel like I've been extremely lucky in my career in the roles that I've had Um, but I've always been fascinated with the kind of evidence-based research methods and just improving my practice really. That's brilliant, love to to hear you so passionate about um, what you do is is the director of English and and shaping that curriculum and references to powerful knowledge there but I love so often um, people you experience chase leadership but it's lovely to hear um, someone who's who's kind of so enthused by by teaching in the classroom. It's um, such an important important role. So thank you for sharing that. Um, and you mentioned a little bit there about um, fascinated by being evidence informed, and and your book takes a lot of um, shape from the evidence. And and you decided to focus on revision, such a a, a wonderful thing to focus on because our students often choose ineffective methods. But I'd like to start off with a key question. Why do our students not revise? Yeah, so this is something, I suppose, obviously, I feel really passionate about this because it's the title of the book. But um, I've just always felt like, although the book starts with my quite positive experience of revision, that I was never actually shown how to revise. So my experience was very much based on luck and some lucky kind of advantages that I was afforded in life and you know supportive parents and things like that but actually we've got now I think it's quite an exciting era in education at the moment because we've got now access to the sort of best bets for our students but it's not always shared and if it is shared it's not always shared in a very explicit way so it was just about actually we're missing something here we could be from year seven or, or actually much much earlier than that you know my, my son's just started primary school and he's learning his phonics sounds and there's lots of strategies in the book that lend themselves to um things like that to be honest um you know teaching students those study skills and once they are explicitly aware of them it's sort of empowering for them so that's the kind of premise behind the book to kind of look at why students don't revise and actually to see that it's quite understandable because they don't really necessarily know how. Um, so I'm loving my sports analogies at the moment. Um, so I kind of see it a little bit like, you know, if I was preparing for a tennis match, I can pr- go off and practice, but I've no idea whether the methods I'm using are, are at all effective unless I've got some kind of coach to guide me through it. Um, so sort of similar idea um, with education, you know, we should be ro- routinely modelling those effective study methods within school. And I just felt that we were 
potentially missing a bit of a trick there. No, certainly agree. I love the sporting analogy as a teacher of physical education. I've got loads of them up my sleeve. So thank you for thank you for letting us in on that. But you're totally right. I think back to my own um, revision through school and university. I was, you know, highlighter, highlighter daft, and um, <laughs> just just through brute force trying to learn everything rather than um, kind of what I know now. I'd probably do it a little bit differently. Um, but what we're going to do now is thanks for sharing that. We're going to then work through the eight steps that you write in your book and take take them in turn and explore them a little bit. And step one, you talk about a revolutionary curriculum and that's about creating a rich curriculum. And you mentioned earlier in your director of English, or you enjoy creating a sequence curriculum with powerful knowledge. We might dip into that a little bit. Why is it important as a first step towards a revision revolution that we have a, a really knowledge rich curriculum? Yeah, so the point I make in step one of the book is that actually it's primarily about memory. And, you know, I think it was um, Daniel Willingham, wasn't it, who wrote a lot about how memory is kind of understanding in disguise. So by empowering students to remember their learning, they're actually starting to develop their schema and memory remembering and making sense of things um so it's more than just that kind of rote learning but actually we need to kind of show students and almost prove to them that we've created a curriculum that's worth remembering so um you know with curriculum again we all love our subjects don't we so it's delving into those ideas about what is it that makes our subject area special what is it that makes it fascinating and different and just ensuring that our curriculum is brimming with that powerful and fascinating knowledge um and I kind of talk a lot in the book about making revision irresistible. I think this is the starting point for that, because if we're, of course, we're impassioned as teachers, aren't we? Like I say, uh, um, we all love our subject areas and we all think our subjects are the best. Um, But if we're, you know, able to teach in a way that's showing students explicitly why that knowledge is so powerful for whatever route they take later in life, then I think it's the first step behind making that revision irresistible. It's actually knowledge and learning that's worth remembering and that they want to remember. I love that. Um, kind of making revision irresistible by making the, the knowledge, as I love it, it's brimming with powerful knowledge, such great um, terminology there. But yeah, I think you're right, um, you know, if we... If we create a, a curriculum that, that is rich in, the stu- in, in powerful knowledge, the students are going to want to revise it and, and learn it and, and kind of embed that into the long-term memory. And what I find most interesting then is step two as well, because you then discuss about engaging key stakeholders. And you start off with staff training. I find that when we're talking about revision, we often talk about the students going off and revising for the test, but you, you start that with staff training. Can I ask you then, Helen, what, what, what should teachers know and what key strategy should they focus on first? Yeah, so again, you know, this era of teaching that I talked about earlier where we all have access to, you know, a wealth of evidence and journals and and great people out there the likes of Tom Sherrington who actually translate some of the really complex stuff into terms that that we all can digest um so you know there's obviously quite a lot isn't there and 
so for that reason I suggest in the book to start simple because I think the worst kind of staff training is where we go right you know there's metacognition there's dual coding there's and and all these different strategies which they are and, and they've all got their place but it's about doing things in enough depth where teachers fully understand them um, and they're able to take them forward in a way that's meaningful so my suggestion in step two is that we start with retrieval um a relatively simple strategy but very very powerful and I like some of the ways that other educators describe it where they say I think it's in powerful teaching where um they talk about how it's just this slight shift so rather than rereading something which is passive students are closing their books and they're having to think and remember, you know, key information or, you know, they they might have summarised some bits and they're self-quizzing using questions and things like that. So it's that slight little shift that makes it then active. So, you know, there there is always that risk, isn't there, of misunderstanding and lethal mutation with everything in education. Um, So I think even with retrieval and it being relatively straightforward, it's giving staff the time and space to implement it successfully. So within one of the CPD sessions in the book, I suggest that departments are given time to consider actually what is the powerful knowledge in your subject area, which I know sort of um, feeds on from step one as well, doesn't sit in the curriculum design. But what is it that you actually want students to retrieve? Um, How is that knowledge relevant and useful? Um, And how can they plan for students to repeatedly bump into that knowledge so creating that kind of mastery type curriculum? So in year one of the revision revolution, kind of giving it that space and time to really develop a toolkit of retrieval strategies that can be used in the classroom and shared and modelled with students um, so that retrieval is done in a really effective way and in quite a, oh, I don't know if honest is the right word, but, you know, in a way that's actually true to what retrieval is and, and avoiding some of those potential lethal mutations. No, it's certainly it's such an important point that you make with that. And, and I love how the, this idea of focusing on one thing, because I, like I'm guilty of it. I lead professional development in, in, in my school and uh, I'm guilty of jumping from thing to thing to thing to thing because I get so excited. But um, it's such an important point that, that you mentioned that having time in departments. I mean, can I, can I ask you how valuable is that time in departments for really deciding on what the student wants, what you want students to achieve? And, and importantly, how you're going to do that in the classroom. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, I'm the same as you, by the way. Um, When I first got my job as AST, I was like, oh, there's 10 million different literacy things I want to implement. And I I do write in the book, actually, about making that mistake. And, And it is because... It you know it's good intentions it's because you're so excited about making a difference but I suppose I've sort of learned the hard way that actually if you're going to do something well it needs time and space and and no one knows the subject better than the experts teaching it and I couldn't say like well for PE for example I certainly couldn't say this is the powerful knowledge that students should be retrieving sort of relying on the subject experts there 100% no, certainly. And I think when, when you decide as a department team that this is the knowledge you want to, the students to be retrieving and, and, and teaching them in our, in our curriculum, it makes the kind of planning of retrieval tasks so much richer. Um, like what you were try, trying to say earlier on, I, I can I, as the word that came into my head, there's that, that kind of richer, deeper um, retrieval. So the students really make it stick to steal a phrase from another 
um, good book. And then, so that's what the, the staff do. And I love how you've started with the staff and, and developing that understanding because I think that understanding of the memory, there's been some good um, blogs on the house people have been doing that. Um, so I think that's so important. Step three is where you begin inducting year seven students into your re revision revolution. And you write that we should begin with debunking revision. What do you mean by that? Oh, so it's a big sort of... Um Oh, it, it's a bugbear of mine, to be honest, um, that I did a little bit of student voice at my school and I wasn't surprised by the results because I think for students, revision has become almost this big monster in many ways because they associate it with exams and tests and therefore they associate it with quite negative feelings of anxiety and stress. Um, but also, it goes back to what we were saying at the start um, about them not really knowing how to do it either. So not only is it something stressful, but it's something really abstract and, you know, they can't quite grasp hold of it. So I just went back to kind of the pure meaning of the word um, and actually looking at the prefix. I'm, I am obsessed with vocabulary, obviously, head of English, you know, <laughs> we're language geeks. But um you know, just the fact that the prefix just means again and then vision means to look. So just talking to students and opening up a much more positive dialogue around revision. So actually, it's absolutely nothing to do with exams and tests. No definition you find of that word will mention exams and tests. That's something we've created um, as a profession, again, with good, good intentions, but it's unnecessary. Um I wanted students to really be able to reframe um, and rethink and almost reimagine, I guess, the idea of revision as something completely non-threatening. So it's just looking again at something you've looked at before. So it's looking again at prior learning. Um, you know, the other definition of the word to make changes to something to improve it. Also equally positive. Um, and they're all things we want students to do. But I just felt really strongly that... It just needs a complete rethink, hence the title Revision Revolution, because actually there's nothing negative about it. And again, if students are empowered with all those different strategies, then they can be revising. And it's nothing to do with being able to pass a test or an exam. That might be, you know, a benefit of effective revision. But actually, it's just about making the learning stick and, and making progress. Um, so that was something that I just felt quite strongly about. Certainly, I love that that little change of of language. Would you say that, that change in language is so so important when discussing revision with our students? This idea of teaching them that this is it actually means to look again, you know, or to another that other form to make changes to improve something. So it has such positive kind of meanings behind it. And you're right in saying that maybe as a profession we inadvertently gave it that, that negative connotations. But how important is that kind of use of language with our students and? Oh, I think it's essential. Um, I think it has the added benefit of showing the students we're a vocabulary rich school. Um, so it gets them looking at those sort of word patterns um, and developing, you know, Alex quickly calls it word consciousness, doesn't doesn't he? So developing that word consciousness as well as reimagining revision. But I think, you know, it's not just the word revision. I think that's a good starting point. But how many of us, if we're honest, have said to students, if you don't revise, you're going to fail or, or, you know, statements similar to that that have made it become this really negative, monstrous thing. And and I wanted to think about how we could reframe all of that. So actually, 
we're saying really we're using really positive language around revision something like you know great self-quizzing to to um, remember that knowledge and just completely rethinking how we approach it because again it goes back to how helpful is it for us to say well you better revise or you might fail or your future is at stake or some of those awful statements that I think we're all guilty of if students don't know how to correct that if they don't know how to actually go and revise it's not necessarily that they're being lazy it could just be that they're not equipped with the strategies or the strategies haven't been fully or clearly modeled to them so yeah I think the language around revision is essential no it's absolutely fantastic listen to it it's it's something that um, I've not really thought about but when I read that I was like that it's just it's 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 so simple it's genius you know Um, that change in, in language and um you know, I think I even I, I think I've definitely been guilty of saying if you don't revise, you're going you're going to fail fail this test and, and making it sound horrible. You're you're totally right of how we've done that, and and that doesn't necessarily come from a, a bad place. It comes from the knowledge that the students that that do so often the students that do revise tend to do quite well. But um, I, 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 that kind of I took a lot away from that, um, just that change in language and, and kind of that example you, you said there that a good good bit of quiz in there so you could retrieve that knowledge and you can encode that into your long-term memory and I, and I love that so kind of going on from that once you've got that kind of language and you've debunked a, a little bit of the fear around revision what three retrieval techniques should we teach our students first um so I suggest again keeping it really simple with the students as at least initially. Um so flashcards and one of the really great methods I think with flashcards is the Leitner system. So the idea that they quiz on their cards um and if they get them correct they shift them over so they'd quiz on them less often. Um but as soon as they get them incorrect they move back to um compartment 1 so they're testing on them daily. So the idea is that they're bumping into the knowledge that they need to bump into most repeatedly and regularly um, so that it does eventually enter long-term memory so the kind of sticking points are what they're encountering the most so I like that lightener system because it's simple it's easy to explain to the students um, but it's also something that incorporates some of those research-based methods of things like spacing Um, I also like the fact it's a great one for parents to get involved with because if the answers are there for them, um, same as with self-quizzing, which was um, another strategy I'll talk about in a second, then it's non-threat for the parents, isn't it? They don't have to worry about knowing the answers. You know, if it was maths, I'd be terrified because, you know, my maths is nowhere near as good as my English. But if the answers are there for me, that's fine. Um, And similar with self-quizzing. So self-quizzing could be on anything. It could be kind of a knowledge organiser. But I am a big fan of notes as well. So something like Cornell Notes, which I know a lot of um, educators are using at the moment, where students take notes on maybe like I love British Library for articles on the literature texts that we teach but I know it'll be different for teachers in different subject areas but just the process of taking notes on one of those brilliant kind of very well written academic texts and then just self-quizzing on those really quite complex academic ideas again the answers are there so it's completely non-threat but it just gets them testing their memory 
Um, and then the third strategy was brain dumps, which actually I've just recently done a, a how to revise lesson with year 11. Um, and I said to them, look, if you've got five minutes, just do a brain dump. And all it is, is um, think of a, a text and a theme, for example, like power in Macbeth, write down everything you know, it could be key quotes, characters, um, you know, anything that's relevant. And then once you've got that, Obviously, it's thinking about the next step, what you do with it. You could apply it into a paragraph or you could go back and have a look at the bits that you missed, you know, cross-reference it with your book and things like that. Um, But all of those are just such simple strategies. Obviously, they need modelling in the classroom and students can't just be told, this is this, off you go. Um, But they're simple. I think you can use them across the whole curriculum. You know, they lend themselves to every subject area. Um, Parents can get involved at home. So I think that's a good starting point with retrieval technique. Certainly, and it's wonderful that you've mentioned mentioned the parents there because I did the exact same thing, speaking to our parents about flashcards and talking about how you know the answer is there. I always you can almost say like if you if you don't get three out of five right, you're getting one less chip in your plate. You know, kind of get the the parents involved in a fun way. But I love how you you mentioned self quizzing and brain drums because they are simple but incredibly powerful strategies. And, and what I love about the, that, that chapter is that you're teaching it to, to your year sevens, you know, so you can imagine that by the time they get to, um, please forgive me if it's wrong, year 10, 11, when they sit their GCSEs, um, and, and for us, when they get to fourth, fifth year, when they sit their national fives and hires, if they've been doing that for such a time, then when it comes to the revision, it, it's more habit for them um, because they can just, they can, Flash. One, one thing I do want to ask about the flashcards, when you're working with students on, on these, do you help them make the flashcards so that they kind of don't start making them on, on things that might not need to learn? Yeah, again, um, I'm going to quote Andy Tharby here because it's just something that really stuck with me when I read one of his many fantastic books when he said, model the kitchen sink. And I just thought, yeah, you know, um, not every student needs that level of modeling, but there are some who do. So for the benefit of them, and and again, I'm doing a bit of name name dropping here, which I'm not meaning to do, but just trying to credit people. I think David Dido said what works for the kind of disadvantaged students works for all. So it's not going to do the rest of the cohort any harm whatsoever um but yeah definitely I think modeling what makes a good flashcard and there's a a bit in the book about how it should just have quite a small amount of information on you know there will be those students won't there who are writing big paragraphs on the back of a flashcard which you absolutely don't want um so yeah I think definitely modeling them and I did this with year eight actually last year where we practiced the Leitner method in class. So I was showing them kind of how to move the flashcards around and and how to write them and stuff. Um, I always think it's important to make things easy for students, but also for parents. So not making any assumptions about the fact that they're going to have card to hand or anything like that. So actually the kids are going home equipped with the flashcards. So they're not having to go home and create anything. Um, you know, again, I know as a parent of of two young boys that things need to be kept simple, otherwise there's not a chance you'll keep on top of it. Um, so yeah, definitely modeling the process as with everything, to be honest. No, certainly. I love that. You, you David dived out quote about what works for disadvantage, what's for all people. It's like when you talk about SCND and people mention quality first teaching, well, that being just high quality teaching benefits also it's a wonderful note but I also love that comment there and making it easy for for students and parents 
um, because we obviously parents are, lead busy lives as well. They don't want to be having to burden them by having to find cards and, and notes and, and so on because maybe not everyone will be able to go and do that. So providing it for them as well, that's another wonderful, wonderful example of how we're supporting our students to to use that kind of study strategies and, and involve their parents as well and, and i love that idea of model the kitchen sink that's, that's what i'm gonna i'm gonna steal gonna steal that one um thank you for that i love what we've explored so far from the staff uh, into the students and, and you've mentioned some really high high impact strategies there so the, the step four then looks at revolutionary lessons what should teachers do in their lessons to support students to learn the content and revise effectively? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to modelling. And for me, that's always been sort of the missing link in revision that it we'd go from teaching the content, which is great and obviously necessary, um, to saying, now revise the content. But actually... By doing routinely doing things like um, so in our department, it's not necessarily across the school, um, but we have part of our department policy is that we start every lesson with some form of retrieval, and I'm deliberately not at all prescriptive about that. Um, again, it would be a lethal mutation for me to say, right, every lesson has to start with a five question quiz. It's not about that at all. It's just anything that gets them activating that prior knowledge. Um, so starting lessons with retrieval, I think it's really beneficial. I know there's some really recent research out, actually. I, I cited it briefly in the book because it was early days um, that talks about how making retrieval relevant to the lesson, which I suppose sounds obvious when I'm saying it out loud, um, is really effective. So we try and always make it relevant um, and obviously growing student schema in that way. Um, and, and there's some really recent evidence around like making it completely no threat as well. So it might be an opinion-based question, like, do you like this character, for example? So they're still activating that prior knowledge, but they don't have to worry at all about whether it's right or wrong, um, depending on the sort of learning intervals and stuff. Um, So I think that's something really simple and really effective for the starts of lessons. Um, Again, like the idea of modelling and just how many of us, and I have certainly fallen victim to this, have said things like, right, take notes on this slide or copy this bit down. Um, But, you know, we're immediately creating a barrier for students with lower reading ages. But if instead we modelled the note-taking process, the self-quizzing process, um, you know, using something like Cornell Notes and possibly an abbreviation key, um, it's just making those really abstract kind of study skills very, very concrete for students. Um, And I I think that's what's missing um, potentially at the moment. There's a little bit of a missed opportunity and it's making the two things complement each other, isn't it? So that our curriculum and our content is actually in line with the study skills. So I, I don't want staff to sort of think, of it as an extra thing it all kind of works in harmony to to empower the students no certainly i love how you could and i'm seeing it there that i could teach the students how to use cornell note-taking and, and help and model that under a visualizer and show them how to do it and show them how to fold the paper and then give them time in class and show them how to self-quiz and show them how they can quiz each other because I think we'll, we'll come we'll come on to that in a little bit but you know you can do that in the classroom I think you're right in saying that we've there's a missed opportunity with a lot of that there because in 
my head, it's probably a stupid kind of saying, but kind of, you know, a research-informed classroom can lead to a, a research-informed bedroom or study space at home. You know, if you if you teach them the the if you if you teach through using those skills, you know, um, teach them note taking, teach them self quizzing, but do it within the content of your lessons. It then will make it much easier. You know, if you, I can remember watching a video on the Teach Like a Champion website of an English teacher and um, the students pick up a green bit of paper after they finished their do now, but what the students are doing are quizzing themselves on the knowledge organizer using the time that's available. So it's maximizing that um, that time and time and learning. So I think I think that's brilliant. Um, is that is that how you saw that missed opportunity? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, like I say, it's just making sure that it's not a bolt on. It's something that is working in harmony with your subject content, in harmony with your curriculum. Um, and just, yeah, just making sure that students feel like they know what they're doing. I mean, it's exactly what you said before, actually, about making it habitual. So if students are having it modelled to them in the classroom um, and they've had that since day one, then it doesn't feel difficult and you know I know all the sort of um research behind desirable difficulties and things it's not like we're not asking them to think hard of course we are and of course we want them to feel challenged but they're challenged through the the content and the knowledge um rather than having like cognitive overload around what they should do in order to revise because though they've got a whole toolkit um ideally in this sort of revision utopia um of, of strategies that they can pick as part of their study sessions certainly we're going to come on to pastoral staff a little bit but it's it's often the 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 guidance team um often talk to teachers about is that student the number one thing they get from parents and students around about time for mock exams is we don't know how to revise how do we do it and um, but if we can teach them through the classroom and start in year seven s1 for us and um, it's going to become habitual so thank you and um, you then go on to discuss how we can train students to support each other we briefly mentioned that a little bit earlier so how, how can we train students to support each other with the revision process yeah, so the reason this is step five is that it's not going to happen immediately. They need tons of that modelling first so that they know how to support each other effectively, essentially, um, and they're confident with the strategies. But once they've been exposed to that repeated modelling, they can begin to work together as revision buddies. And I think this is really powerful because I think a lot of the time, again, we're in a culture, aren't we? And, and we can't, unfortunately, change that where they're constantly competing and if one student does well another one has to do badly and I think that's such a shame um so I love the idea of them working as revision buddies where actually they're on the same side and they're relying on one another to succeed I think it it creates a great culture um and classroom environment so just doing things like quizzing one another so they might use the questions that they've created as part of Cornell Notes, for example, um, if you've got to the stage in your revision revolution where you've um, taught the students how to use elaboration, so, you know, like how and why questions, um, they could do some of that. Um, something I use a lot is paired writing. So it's when one student is completing the writing and sort of verbalising their thought process and the other student is watching questioning them um you know like really trying to push and challenge them to add value to their writing and and that 
always does work a treat. They need clear guidelines. Um, it needs to have been modeled to them. But once that again becomes habitual and becomes routine, it's incredibly powerful. And, and it's lovely to see how proud they are actually of the other person's work because it's seen as a team effort. Um, so yeah, they're kind of supporting each other to succeed. Um, it's not high stakes, it's not competitive. Um, and and it's that use of metacognition as well, because they're actually starting to explain their thinking, or you know, their partner might be correcting them um or extending each other's thinking. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book is tip, tip, teach, try again. So again, it needs modeling. Students won't immediately be able to to use the kind of expert level of questioning that we use in the classroom. But it's this idea that if their partner gets an answer wrong and, you know, they might have some kind of resource with the answer on it to kind of quality control that process, but they then give them a tip and another tip um, to try and get, you know, to try and elicit the correct answer out of them rather than just, no, that's wrong or this is the answer. Um, then eventually they would get to the teach stage but even then they're sort of explaining so using that metacognition um, and then they're asking their partner again so that it's you know you talked about Doug Lemoff before it's his kind of know what tell strategy isn't it where okay you didn't know the answer but that doesn't mean you're not answering it <laughs> you still have to I'm going to ask you again and you need to show that you've listened so yeah, I'm a big fan of those kind of coaching strategies um, because I think it, it's a really great way to get students thinking metacognitively um, and supporting each other through the revision, revision process. Nice. I think some wonderful examples there, but I, I love what you said there about, you know, our students are constantly competing, um, but, you know, learning, they're learning the same things. So supporting each other um, is so important and, um, I love your examples there of of paired writing and, and was it tip 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 teach try again. I love that. I'm gonna definitely definitely steal that for my own classroom. So thank you so so much for for sharing that. But that's another missed a missed trick I think we've got that you've kind of opened up there. That you know we often picture students trudging off to revise alone, but there is so much power in them revising with each other, especially in those kind of elaboration techniques and questioning each other why is that how's that can you explain that in different words um to me and i think that, that would help them both learn and, and i really love the note you had you said on the paired writing example where the the student feeling as much pride in their co- their peers work than their own that's brilliant um so we briefly mentioned um, the pastoral team a little bit there and step six is, is looking at the pastoral curriculum. So how can we best utilise the pastoral curriculum to teach students effective study methods? Yeah, so I know obviously there is um, statutory guidance, isn't there, around what needs to be included there. Um, but I think, you know, everything's context dependent. So it's for teachers to go away and have a look and see where they could potentially fit it in. But I do think there may be an opportunity here to teach the science of learning through the pastoral curriculum. So it doesn't necessarily have to come completely through PSHE or wellbeing lessons. It could be included in form time as well. Um, particularly like we've got a sixth form, which I think you said you do as well. Um, you know, it 
would be such a great opportunity, I think, for our sixth formers. Um, obviously, by this time, they are um, completely well-versed in revision habits, but I think it'd be such a great opportunity for them to be using um, some of the revision strategies within that form time. Um, so, you know, I, I well, I suggest in the book, in Step 6, a kind of outline of what a pastoral curriculum might look like that teaches the science of learning because like I said earlier and actually in that year 11 lesson um when I was teaching them how to rise I did start by saying do you have your teachers ever shared with you anything around the kind of science of learning and, and what works and what doesn't and and they said no and that's tops at year 11 and I thought again what a missed opportunity I know it's not like I'm repeating myself but I just thought actually how do you know that cramming is not the right thing to do if you don't know about the science behind kind of little and often and spacing and things like that. Um, So to use another sports analogy, um, just to make you happy, um, a bit like a coach kind of knowing the reason behind match winning technique and what's effective, but not sharing it with their player. Um, Why again, in this era of knowing the best bets and being very research informed in education, would we not share that? Um, And I think, potentially the pastoral curriculum would be a good way to do that and sort of teach them the how and the why behind revision to get them really investing in effective study and I think although a lot of it is quite complex um, I do think there are ways that we can make it fairly simple and quite concrete for our students. Definitely I think um, think you've kind of unlocked something really big there I think there are some um, schools that do do that through the pastoral, pastoral curriculum and it's something that something that I think that's got lots of legs especially if if you do a form time in the morning you can drip feed that over time but I think teaching students the how how we learn and the the kind of that science of learning will really help them connect dots you know when they're going to chemistry and they're doing a brain dump they're going to English and they're and they're doing vocabulary practice and they're going to um PE and they're doing some block practice with some interleaving and so on <laughs> you know and, and they start oh, I understand that but I think in terms of you mentioned the, the statutory guidance I think in terms of if, if you know the best bits and how to learn that's a super life skill like a real super life skill um, you know I can remember finishing reading Make It Stick and thinking I need to teach every children about this this is so, so important But and, and definitely that's one great way that schools can do that um, and then allow the, the teachers to then model all these different techniques successful techniques so that's fascinating thank you so much um, I'd also like to, to stick on uh, move on to discussing the, the adults in, in students lives we've mentioned flashcards and parents getting involved with flashcards but how do we engage adults to be part of our revision revolution Yeah, so I think everything you've mentioned so far is about creating a culture, like a cultural um, shift. So, you know, by having it there in the pastoral curriculum, like you said, but then also modelled in classrooms, so it's kind of everywhere. Um, But I think part of that cultural shift is getting senior staff really being the forefront of the revolution. So they might deliver assemblies on revision. um, 
you know, they might be standing right at the front of staff training. It doesn't mean they're delivering that training necessarily, but they're just championing it, championing it. And I think that's absolutely crucial because staff need to see that senior leaders are absolutely on board with this and they can see the value. Um, I think creating a continuous dialogue around revision as well. So that can come from middle leaders sometimes by making it part of meetings, um, but obviously senior leaders as well. And even informal discussions, you know, it might just be a chat in the staff room or something. Um, I've talked about obviously keeping things simple for parents. But um, one thing that I do is I do put out a newsletter for parents. um, And it's got a very different content to the kind of things I would do with staff because obviously different audience and and I want to keep things really simple for them but it was quite powerful in my last parents evening with year 11 to be able to say to them the next newsletter is going to have a revision focus and within that there was a bit of guidance around Cornell notes um just simply something around how to create um a good study environment for their children so even just things like just take their phone off them (laughs) or or you know you don't even have to take it off them but encourage them to put their phone to one side just for the duration of the study session so tiny little bits like that that are making parents feel part of this revision process as well and making parents feel empowered that they know simple strategies to support their students um if you're lucky enough to have um a bit of a technology team, I guess, you know, you could put videos on school website, which are modeling and showing parents as well as students how to do specific strategies, they can be really useful. Um, But I think, like we've said before, the key thing with parents is making sure they have everything they need. Um, I don't know whether it's worth just briefly mentioning as well, it sounds like I'm going off tangent here, but when we were in lockdown, um, I always remember my older son watching a lot of Mr. Maker. And if you don't know who he is, he um, does all like pictures and paintings and things. And, you know, we were okay. We could order in the sort of colored card or whatever we needed. But it just occurred to me through that period of time that there is a thing called craft poverty. And actually, for those poor families who are stuck in in full lockdown and trying to entertain their children they just don't have the money to pay for these things so you know as we talked about earlier providing all the materials and resources and never making assumptions about what um students home lives are like i suppose that's such an an important point um to have because you're totally right that that craft poverty there's so much so many people struggling and and i think getting that support from schooling that we can send home the the notepads, the the flashcards, the, the knowledge organisers with the students, so they don't need to worry about that. I think that's I think that's um, such such an important point because it's like um, I don't know if you if you have them down down south of the border, but we have you can go into a Waterstones or a W H Smith and buy past papers and practice questions for all our subjects. But I think that that's just without. It's a great thing, but it wide it just widens that poverty related attainment gap because you know I was fortunate enough that my parents could go and get me all these things and we could sit at the table and do all these things, whereas other students possibly don't have that. So I think that's an, such such an important point. No, we're making it things such simple and and 
helpful for our parents and really involving them in their students' education. I think that's a, a really important point to make. So thank you for for bringing that to our attention. Um, so can I bring it back to the to the students and and, and our last step before we discuss how discuss how we can sustain our revision revolution. Um, and step eight is is discussing homework. How can how can teachers use homework to support home study? Yeah, so again, I use a lot of anecdotes in the book because I used to definitely set homework to satisfy a homework policy. You know, oh, it's it's this time in the week, so I need to be setting my key stage four homework or my key stage three homework, but it wasn't always purposeful. Um, so just, again, just aligning homework with study and actually that can massively reduce our workload. So I think I write in the book about struggling with the workload created by homework. So, you know, not only marking it, but also all of the catch up. So you sort of put in students in detention when they've not done it. And by the time it finally comes in, it's out of date anyway. Um, so it's always been a bit of a issue for me, really. But I think if we're aligning it with study, so we might give them a homework, for example, that is self-quizzing. And we might want to see evidence of that self-quizzing, but doesn't need to be marked. So it has several benefits, I guess. One being that it's reducing our workload as practitioners, but also that students are getting something out of it. So we might say, oh, I want you to self-quiz on this particular area and actually I'm going to give you a quiz on it. I'm going to give you a closed book quiz on it next week so they can see clearly the purpose of their revision and there's a bit of accountability there as well. Um, There's quite a lot of simple strategies that I include in step eight. Some of them we've mentioned like the flashcard self and self-quizzing but also one book that informed quite a lot of the book that I really enjoyed was Powerful Teaching. I know I've already mentioned that. Um, and there's some great ideas in there. So one of their strategies is power tickets. Um, and another one is retrieval cards. And they're all a- around like kind of items of knowledge um, and retrieving those items of knowledge. But, you know, whatever students can't retrieve, they're looking it up Um And so it's completely low stakes and there's a guarantee of success because you either know it and you're writing it from memory um, or you're retrieving it um, from your class resources. Um, So it's great in that sense. It's really empowering. But it also shows students very clearly what they're confident with and what they need to work on. So it's got that metacognitive aspect to it as well. Um, I did slightly adapt one of their resources as well to retrieve knowledge but then using that retrieved knowledge incorporate it into a beautiful sentence so there's quite a bit in step eight around sentence building and how that could be part of students home study because it was trying to bridge the gap between retrieval and knowing you know the facts and actually the higher order thinking which is absolutely crucial isn't it you know the skills of analysis and evaluation that they will need to be using to actually apply that knowledge into an essay or whatever it might be in each particular subject area. So looking at ways of bridging the gap um, through little activities like writing a beautiful sentence using a particular um, grammatical technique or some or particular vocabulary and things like that. So lots of ways in which to extend the student's thinking at home as well. Certainly, I love all that examples to, to kind of deepen learning, but also support staff workload. But with a main aim of of um, helping the students kind of 
kind of deepen their learning. And I love that notes on, on sentence building and your references to powerful teaching because I had the privilege to chat with Patrice Bain for the podcast because I equally loved that book um, as well. And she shared some pure gold. So thank you for that for that reference. Um, so just before we close off our exploration of, of your book, I'd like to, to finally ask you, so we've kind of covered all the, the steps from our curriculum to engaging all our key stakeholders, the key strategies we teach at our year sevens that hopefully become habits they use throughout their lifetime, our, le- our lessons, adults, homework, pastoral curriculum. Um, how do we sustain momentum after introducing and embedding the, these key ideas to support students? Yeah, this one's really tricky, isn't it? I think, you know, we both said earlier, didn't we, that we are starters, maybe not finishers. Um, and, in you know, that excitement that comes with implementing something, how do you sustain that momentum? But obviously it is also essential. Um, so I guess with any kind of change management, it's just seeing it as a continuous cycle. So just as, you know, everyone is talking about curriculum at the moment, rightly so, and the fact that curriculum is never finished and should never be perceived as finished. And it's the same here, really. So, you know, the diagnosis, precise diagnosis of the issue and and to begin with, the issue here is ineffective study. Um, setting your agreed targets, be your next step. Um, running your CPD which is relevant to what your next steps are and where you're at as a school Um, and then re-evaluating where you're up to against those agreed targets so at the beginning of the book there's an audit um, that schools or practitioners are encouraged to complete just to see where where they're at because as I said earlier everything's context dependent and then it would make sense to obviously reorder where you're up to um, and see what your next steps are so you know is it that actually retrieval is working a treat across the school we feel like everyone all our key stakeholders are well versed in retrieval so now perhaps we're going to shift our focus to metacognition or looking at really effective um, elaborative interrogation or something like that Um, I think other ways to keep the momentum up are using our absolutely best asset, the students. So it might be that we utilise the year sevens who started on that revision journey with us when they become year 10, perhaps they become some kind of revision advocate with the new year seven cohort. And so they're really able to infuse about study, knowing exactly what strategies to use, when to select them, and just becoming part of that ongoing dialogue around effective study. So I suppose the further you move along a journey of school improvement, the more you can utilise your students as champions and leaders um, once it's been, as we've talked about loads, haven't we, routinely modelled to them. So there are a few ways that I think about keeping up momentum but I'm sure well I hope that as people read the book and trial things um that there'll be lots of different ideas flying about no definitely some some such key ideas I love that one about you know your year seven does it become year tens then becoming advocates and and mentioning one of your steps about students supporting each other you know the students are why we why we go to work every morning so why not use them to 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 train the the younger students, I think coming from a, a young coming from a, a young person to another young person, I think that has so much power. I think Petra McRae talks about that in motivated motivated teaching about the power of the peer group and and so on. And you know, I, I can imagine like a, a senior student going teaching a a year seven and backing up the learning they're getting in their classrooms and and 
in their in their assemblies, you know, saying it really does work. You know, if you if you use the flashcards and you do some self quizzing, it, it really does. It will be it's it's amazing, you know, and that coming from them, it will just maintain that momentum. So wonderful notes there. So that brings us to the end of that exploration of your wonderful book, uh, the Revision Revolution. So before we move on to the the quick fire round, the final three questions that I have in every episode, can you share with listeners where they can go and buy the book because they need to get their hands on it? Uh, and also, can you direct them to any social media channels that you have so they can contact you directly? Yeah, of course. So um, you can get it on Amazon um, and also Waterstones, I believe. Um, and... Oh, nobody can find me on Twitter, you know. I need to change my Twitter handle. Um, but I am at Cura underscore Dora, which appears to have no bearing on my name, I, I know, which is why I'm getting... There's a lot of tweets out there, I think, about the book that I'm not being um, included in for that reason. Um, but yeah, I've got that very bizarre Twitter handle and people are more than welcome to contact me. I really would encourage people to let me know how things are going if they're trialing things. Um, I'd absolutely love that. Um, welcome people's ideas and feedback, etc. No, definitely. I'll link people to your Twitter, your Twitter handle in, in the show notes as well so they can get in touch with you from from that and and I encourage them to go out and read the book because it really is a wonderful guide and how to how to make your school a, a part of that revision revolution. So we're now going to go on to my to my quick fire round the questions that I ask every guest and I'm super excited to hear your answers. Are you, are you ready? <laughs> I think so. Okay, so let's go for it. Uh, can I ask you, Helen, what are you reading currently? Yeah, it makes me laugh that you say quick fire because you're asking an English teacher what they're reading. Um, so I've just finished Grendel's Mother um, by Susan Morrison, which is a wonderful kind of feminist retelling of Beowulf, um, sort of reimagines Grendel's mother as a really strong female protagonist, but not villainous. You know, she's obviously demonised, isn't she, in the original tale? Um, but she becomes an outcast because she's seen as alien and a bit of a threat to the domination of men. So I absolutely love that. Um, I've made a star on Maria Headley's retelling as well. And I love, in her introduction, she poses the question about Grendel's mother. Is she truly a monster or simply a bereaved mother who happens to have warrior type skill? Um, which actually, incidentally, reminds me of Mary Bird's essay on the demonization of women in power, because she draws on a lot of the Greek myths in her work. Um, you know, the Amazon tribe, for example, and Medusa and the way that powerful women are really made to be something um, monstrous, which um, the reason behind all of this, by the way, was that I was developing a scheme of work on medieval literature, well, primarily on Beowulf. Um, for year seven and I always like to read around it so sort of that idea that our curriculum is very much canon based but we actively encourage students to critique the canon so we'll explore those adaptations and and start to question some of the I suppose some of the male gaze kind of versions of text. Um, so yeah, I got really, really into all of that. I was reading um, Neil Gaiman's North Mythology as well, that's another one that, that I enjoyed. <laughs> Brian, I love that. I love that. It was great, but it's so fascinating. Such an insight into into how you prepare for um, your English lessons. I, I love that. I loved hearing that. Thank you 
so so much for sharing that, and I think that's a good highlight of how can I how much we love our subjects and you read around topics to really enrich the discussion. So thank you. Um, the second question I have is, what is your current professional development focus? So yeah, um, I mean personally, we we sort of have more of a I don't know if this is a cop out, but we sort of have more of a departmental focus I guess um so we're looking at again I said about being obsessed with vocabulary and we've got a real embedded kind of way of teaching vocabulary very much informed by Isabel Beck's bringing words to life um in our department you know really proud of the kind of impact it's having but our next stage is looking at the assessment of vocabulary and kind of growing students banks of words um looking at you know carrying vocabulary through from different schemes and years in our retrieval activities um also kind of making the vocabulary more challenging as we go up through key stage three so starting to look at things like actually rather than introducing a word we're going to introduce a pair of words like malevolent and benevolent is one of the pairings um that we start to look at um also working on developmental writing so again this is really informed by some of the work of Doug Lemov and, and other kind of English practitioners like Tom Needham um or the writing revolution um certainly so starting to look at teaching right um sorry teaching students explicitly how to use noun positives and things like that but again our next stage with this is how do we gradually reduce the scaffold so at the moment, there's a lot of explicit instruction, which is great, and we're seeing the impact of that, but reducing and kind of employing fading, I guess, to get them to a stage of independence and mastery with it, that's our next challenge. Right, I love that so much in there. I've only just finished reading, reading, reconsidered in, in the writing revolution, and it's so fascinating. I'm thinking about how can I, how I can embed that in the work that I do. Um, so thank you for, for sharing that. It's so fascinating to get the insights of what departments in that in in different departments different subjects do to really develop the students and and in the work that you're mentioning there is not only relevant for their english curriculum but that's so powerful for across the school you know i, I spoke to alice quigley most recently um for the podcast and we spoke about this you mentioned word cautiousness this this kind of word rich words richness that you have the more they have and then it's interesting you're talking about the the developmental writings i spoke about that briefly with with doug lamov so thank you for for kind of what would you call it piecing it all together a little bit in, in your thinking there thank you and my final question to you is what do you love the most about being a teacher Oh, I think you said it earlier when you said we go to work for the students. Um, it's got to be the students. Um, they honestly never fail to both surprise and impress me. And I do feel like they always, you know, high expectations. I write about how powerful they are in the book, but I just feel like students will always rise to those high expectations. And, and I've never once met a student who doesn't want to do well. So, you know, we always get that response, don't we, in like from the general public of oh my gosh you work with teenagers how can you possibly and it's such a shame that they're perceived in that way because they're wonderful and you know challenging yes and some of them will need a good deal of support and patience from us but um you know just amazing young people um who never fail to 
inspire me. And also, you know, often the gratitude is unspoken, isn't it? We don't necessarily get thanked on a daily basis, but it's there and you can see it. Um, I said to um, one of my ex-colleagues the other day, you know, some of them might not thank us until 10 years later, but they'll get there, they'll realise. Um, and, and of course, I love my subjects as well. I don't think biased, of course, but what can be better than teaching kind of the power of stories and the power of language? Um, definitely very passionate about English as the best subject there is. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I'd argue that physical education is, you know, teaching students to see the students joy when they finally master volleyball, which is an incredibly complex skill, is, is so wonderful. But Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I took so much away. It was probably the, one of the most fascinating quickfire rounds I've ever had because it certainly wasn't quickfire. But tapping, in, tapping into the, the insights there, it, it's wonderful. I just love the, I call it the, the nitty-gritty, the nuts and bolts of, of teaching that we don't talk about often. But when we when we do, you can, you can just tell the, the passion and enthusiasm that just runs right through that. So that brings us to the end of, of the interview on Becoming Educated. I've absolutely loved exploring the, revi- the, the, the revision revolution with you, Helen. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Becoming Educated. Before you go, can I ask for a few things that will only take a minute? I'd love it if you could review the podcast wherever you are listening from to get each episode into more ears. If you want to support the podcast, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash DN Leslie. And finally, to keep the conversation going, please use the hashtag becomingeducated and tag me on Twitter at DN Leslie. I'll be back soon with more insights and knowledge from the greatest profession on earth.